All right. We're fired up, ready to go. People are running on eight cylinders here this morning. It's great. Well, let's, um, let's turn in our Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 13. Turn with me to John chapter 13, page 993 in the Pew Bible. And uh, if you have come into this place and you don't have a copy of God's Word personally, this is our gift to you. So please, please, um, please feel free to take that home if you need a copy of God's Word. That's our gift to you today. And, um, and uh, we, um, uh, we, we don't necessarily put the words of the Scripture on the screen. We, we like to use the Pew Bibles because, because we are of the mindset that if the Word of God is not in your hand, the Word of God is never going to make it to your heart. Uh, so whether it's, whether it's a book or whether it's the, uh, as, as, as the youth tend to do, if it's the soft glow of God's Word on your face uh, from your electronic device, we want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand um, and we want you to read it, we want you to meditate on it, we want you to study it, we want you to apply it to your life, we want you to live it out every day. Uh, and so that's our goal. That's how we want to handle uh, the Word of God. And, and I was taught in seminary how to preach. And in seminary they taught us that the main point of the text and the main point of the sermon should be the same thing. We don't use, we don't use the Bible like it's a diving board. We use the Bible like it's the swimming pool. We, uh, we, we, we swim around in it. We study it. We learn it. We dig deep. Uh, so that's what we aim to do here this morning on page 993. Um, I've entitled, the, Pastor Jim is really good at doing the whole slide thing. I don't do the slide thing as well as Pastor Jim does. He puts a bunch of verses on there. He does a whole long-winded thing. I don't write as much as he does, so if you're taking notes, you'll take a lot less today. That's fine. It's fine. But I, I did, I creatively, I exercised my creativity, which is limited anyway, but I creatively titled this message, A Not-So-New Commandment, A Whole New Understanding. And so that's what I want us to, to camp out in, uh, talking about the love of God, the love from God, the love for God today. That's where I want us to, to talk is, is about, about the love of Christ. Um, we began this series about a year ago today, uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving last year. We started in John chapter 1, and Pastor Jim is convinced that it will be about Thanksgiving of next year when we uh, when we finish this series through John, but we we want to preach verse by verse through the text of Scripture. We don't like to pick and choose what passages we pull out of God's Word. We like to to methodically preach through hunks of Scripture: Psalm one nineteen, Galatians, First Corinthians, the Book of John, the Book of Joshua. We like to methodically preach through the Word of God. Uh, and that's Pastor Jim's philosophy on preaching, and that's my philosophy on preaching. Um, because, because when we preach through a hunk, a big, a big swath of, of, of scripture, you don't get the luxury of picking and choosing what to preach. In 1 Corinthians, you preach passages that you don't want to have to preach. You get to preach passages that you really want to, and you preach passages that are not so easy to wrestle with. But it's really good for us to study the depth and the breadth of the Word of God in this way. So, uh, John chapter 13 is where we are this morning. And I invite you to turn to verse 31. The new commandment on verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. 
Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I tell you. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father God, as we approach the Christmas season, as we live through the hustle and bustle of busy, full calendars in the weeks to come, I pray that we would approach Bethlehem and approach the manger and approach the Christ child as the ultimate display of your love for us. And God, I pray that when other people look at our lives, they will see that indeed we have encountered in a very real and personal way the love of God. And I pray that our lives would be simply a reflection of who you are and what you've done for us. That is our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before I delve too much further, let me, um, let me make a couple of announcements that I missed uh, a moment ago. Um, I have the list of bell ringing times at Ingalls. So if you, need to, if you are inclined to stand out there and ring a bell, let's sign up uh, and support East Oaks Outreach Ministry in that way. Also, Tomorrow is Cyber Monday. I've been told tomorrow is Cyber Monday. I try to stay as far from the computer as I can. But it's Cyber Monday. I don't know what that is. But um, if you are an Amazon customer, you can go to Amazon Smile. I don't know if you're familiar with this. You can go to Amazon Smile and you can select East Oaks Outreach Ministry as your charity of choice. And um, East Oaks will receive a half, a half percentage point of all sales that you purchase off of Amazon which is pretty good. So there you go. There's a tidbit of information for you. Take that, put it under your hat, do with it what you want to put it at. I've made the announcement. I've checked the box. I'm good to go. Okay. Um, so John chapter 13, in this passage we have, and, and I love this, I love this. Pastor Jim didn't give me a lot of verses to preach this Sunday, so I'm excited about that. I get to really drill down into the few verses that we do have. Um, but And some, some digestible portions of Scripture are larger than others. Um, but this is a, a beyond digestible portion. But it's, but it's a, a relatively small portion. It's just a, a few verses. Um, but I want to really unpack a couple of words this morning as we go. I want to unpack the word glorify. Because that's, a, that's an important word to understand. It gives a great depth to, the, depth to this passage. The other word that I want to unpack is love. And I want us to look at both of those kind of in tandem today. So I want to start out with verses 31 and 32 that talk about glorifying God. The word there is doxadzo. That's the Greek word. It's called doxadzo. If, if you hear that, uh, some of you probably naturally think of the word doxology. Uh, a doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Miss Lee loves the doxology. We do not do it enough in Miss Lee's opinion. Uh, so we need to do it more. We need to do it every, however often we need to do it, Miss Lee. But the doxology is a praise to God for who he is and what he has done. So that's the, that's the meaning of the word doxazo is to, is to glorify, to praise, um, 
We can, we can understand it better as uh, to cause someone or something to have greatness, uh, to, to make great, to give praise, laud, value, or honor. But it also has a different, a different meaning in the Greek, and that is, that is to opine or to believe or to hold something. For, for me to glorify something, it speaks a lot about what that one or thing is that receives the glory from me, but it also speaks about who I am to view that thing as worth, worthy of glory. So it's a, it's a, it's an important verb. And so, so it's a, when we glorify God, it's a reflection of who God is, and it's also a reflection of who we are. It's a both and. And so it's, it's naturally tied to our worship. I was studying through Revelation chapter four, uh, this past week, uh, and talking about worship. And, and verse uh, 11 of Revelation 4, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And I, I literally, I spent 10 minutes just, just trying to ponder this thing because I thought, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. Well, we can glorify God. I got that. We can honor God correctly. That's a good thing. But we can't give him power. We can't, if God is omnipotent, all-powerful. That's part of his nature, part of who he is. If he has all power, then he can't receive any more power. And I'm just, I'm just thinking, I don't understand. I don't understand this passage of scripture. And so Revelation 4, and, and then finally Pastor Jim shed a little light on it because oftentimes Pastor Jim and I have to help each other wrestle through passage of scripture. So he, he shed a little light on it. And so he can't receive any more power from us. We can't give him any more power than he already has. But we we can allow him to exercise his power in our lives. We can give him authority and control over our lives to exercise his power. So when we give the Lord power, we're not actually increasing his amount of power. We are just allowing him to use his power as the Lord of our life. Does that make any sense? It's a, it's a personal thing that we allow the Lord to do that. And so, so when we give glory to God, it's the same type of thing. God has all glory. He deserves all glory. We can't add to his glory. But what we can do is, is reflect his glory in our heart and we can, we can allow his glory to move in our lives. This, this verb here, uh, the glorify is, it's, it's, I'm, I don't want to bore you too much, but it's passive and intransitive. Don't worry about those words. But what, what that means is that it does not separate the actions of God the Son from God the Father. This, this same verb is used interchangeably for the glory of Christ and the glory of God the Father. So, so as we glorify Christ, we're glorifying God. As we glorify God the Father, we're glorifying God the Son. And so it's a, it's an interchangeable worship experience from us to the Lord. And so I want us to understand that, that when, when we, when we praise Christ, we're praising God the Father. When we praise God the Father, we're praising the Christ. We're praising God the Son. And so it's a, it's a both and. We, we as Christians, we cannot distinguish the two however we try. Because, because the work that Christ has done for us, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but the work that Christ has done for us is indeed the work of God the Father. 
the work of redemption and salvation. Um, and so the other thing about this, this verb, this doxadzo verb, is that it's in the past tense, the aorist tense, if you have studied grammar. Um, he is speaking of his death and consequent glorification as if it had already been accomplished. Jesus is speaking in the past tense, has been glorified or was glorified. It's as if these things have already taken place. What Christ was fixing to do, what Christ is is about to undergo in, in the cross, it was a sure thing. It was a given. It had already been set out to be accomplished. It was as if it had already been accomplished. And so the glorification that we sh- that he should receive uh, it is as if it has already taken place in the way that he is speaking in verses 31 and 32. Now I want us to move forward to verse 33. I really wrestled with this verse because verses 31 and 32 teach us one thing. And verses 34 and 35 teach us a different thing. And I thought, well, why is 33 just stuck in there? He's already said that. He 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 said what he said in John chapter 8. Verses 21 and 22, that's what he means that he says, I've already said this to the Jews. He said that in John chapter 8, where, uh, where I am going, you cannot come. So why, why did he stick it in here again in what he is, in what he's teaching? So I, I, I thought about this and, and then Friday and yesterday, I kind of thought, well, this verse 33 is kind of a bridge between the principle he's teaching in 31 and 32 and the other principle that he's teaching in 34 and 35. So the, the bridge, um, it, it explains that what he is going to do, no one else can do. Christ is uniquely qualified to make such a sacrifice. Where I am going, you cannot come. What Jesus is alluding to here is his, is his crucifixion and his death. Uh, and ultimately he's alluding to his resurrection also. But, but he is uniquely qualified to die the death he is about to die. Uh, and so, so David, what's the next point on this slide? This, this explains, this explains why the son is to be glorified. So because of this sacrificial death on the cross, because of what he is about to do, he's the only one that is capable of that. Because of that, it explains why the son is to be glorified. What's the next point? It also explains how the father is glorified. We talk about the glory of God. We talk about how how glorious God is and how worthy he is of our praise because of his nature. And we have a pretty good understanding of that from the Old Testament. But ultimately for us as Christians today, the reason that God receives glory is because of the salvation that we have in the name of the Lord Jesus. We have redemption from sin. We have salvation for eternity through the three, through the free grace of Christ. We don't have to bear the consequences of our own actions anymore. And so for us, that is how the Father is glorified. When, when we reflect on the cross of Christ, that's the whole point uh, of, of explaining God's love for us. What's the next point? And it's also, it also encapsulates how we should love one another. And I'll get to that in verses 34 and 35. It explains what that love is and what that love should be. So not only does it, does this where I am going verse serve as kind of a bridge between two principles. 
It explains why the Son is to be glorified, how the Father is glorified, how we are capable of, of loving one another, and how we are capable of knowing what that love is. So we bridge into this love passage. 34 and 35 are two of the greatest verses in all of the text of Scripture. They step on my toes more than any other verses step on my toes. Verses 34 and 35 use the word love a whole bunch of times. And if you count in the English, there's a one number. If you count in the Greek, it's a different number of the of the uses of this word. But the Greek word is agapao. It's a, it's a verb, agapao. Uh, the, the noun version is agape. Um, most of you have heard the word agape in, in, in passing. But the word agape is used very rarely. The word agapao is used more often. So, so love isn't used as a noun very often in scripture. It's usually used as a verb. And it means to have warm regard for or interest in another. To cherish, to have affection for, to have high esteem or a satisfaction with, to take delight in. We should, it, it, it can also be used to practice or express or prove someone's love. This stands starkly opposed to the other Greek words for love. There's a, there's a different Greek word for love, it talks about eros, and it's a, it's a romantic, uh, in some, in some instances, it's a, it's a sexual nature type of a love, a, a, a husband and wife kind of love. It also stands against another Greek word, a philo, a, a Philadelphia, if you've known the, the, the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philo is another, another type of love, that's a, that's a brotherly love, it's a, it's a kindred spirit type of a love. And so this, this word that, that John is using here stands against a romantic type of a love. It stands against a brotherly love and it's almost always a verb. And so I want to, I want to try to unpack that, that truth and that principle, uh, this morning. I reflect back to Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus is pressed. Jesus is pressed by the teachers of the law. Well, what is the greatest commandment? And so he gives, he gives two. He, I don't know. It's a bit of a cop out if you ask me. He gives two that are one and kind of one and the same to love God and love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the, the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter five. And he also talks about loving one's neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus chapter 19. So Jesus is giving this instruction, but it's not a new instruction. It's for, for the Jews that Jesus is interact, interacting with, they have a hearty understanding of what that love should look like already. And so for the Greeks that Jesus is speaking to, he is, he is separating this from a romantic love and he's separating this from a brotherly love. But to the Jews, they already have a really good understanding of what this love means. Uh, he uses uh, the word hesed in the Hebrew. The Old Testament the Old Testament word for love, hesed, is not an emotional response to beauty, merit, or kindness, but it's a moral attitude dedicated to another's good, whether or not that other is lovable, worthy, or responsive. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 talks about the love of Christ. And Philippians 2 verses 2 and 3 and 4 Talk about the humility of Christ and how we should put someone else's needs ahead of the needs of our own, of ourself. And so putting others ahead of ourself, and that, that's the type of love that the Jews had a, had a hearty understanding of. 
Uh, so an attitude dedicated to another's good, whether or not that other person is lovable, worthy, or responsive. This enduring loyalty is rooted in an unswerving purpose of good. It could be stern. Uh, God's love was, was determined to discipline a wayward people in the Old Testament, as several prophets warned about. But God's love does not change. Through exile and failure, uh, it persisted with, with infinite patience, neither, neither condoning evil nor abandoning the evildoer. It, it has within it kindness, tenderness, and compassion. We see that in the Psalms. We see that in the book of Hosea. This, this word is used, hesed. But its chief characteristic is an accepted moral obligation for the welfare of someone else. That's the type of love that Jesus was referring to. Uh, and, he, and he brought it straight from the Old Testament. This selflessness, this sacrificial love, this putting others ahead of yourself. That's the type of love that, 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 the, that the Jews had a robust understanding of from the Old Testament. So, this love that Jesus is commanding us to practice is not a new demand or a new command so much as it is a new situation. Uh, while the command to love God and your neighbor was not new, Jesus' example, he says, as I have loved you. Jesus' example was unparalleled, as was his insistence that we should love our enemy. So Jesus gives us a new understanding of love because he lived it out. We have, a, we have a new example of what that love should look like. And he also goes a step beyond the Old Testament teaching of love and says that not only should we love one another, we should also love our, our enemy. I tell you, it's easy to love some people. It is not easy to love everyone. But even our enemy, Christ tells us, to love them and to put their needs ahead of our own. To love them with a selfless, sacrificial love, whether they will ever appreciate it or not. That's the kind of new love that Christ is teaching us about in this passage. Uh, I, I was doing some studying this week, and this was kind of an aha thought. Uh, I, I, I ran across this in a commentary, and I thought, ah, that can't be right. And the more I read, and the more I read, and the more I read, and I highlighted, and I used my red pen that Aaron loves so much, uh, I thought, I thought, well, daggum. That, that commentary was right. And it said, love for one's neighbor is not defined anywhere, but it seems to be illustrated everywhere. And I thought, well, daggum, that's a pretty profound statement. It is not defined anywhere, but it seems to be illustrated everywhere. I, I think of the example of the Good Samaritan. We read in uh, Luke 15-ish about the Good Samaritan. And so why does Jesus tell the parable of the Good Samaritan? Because he's being interrogated by uh, the Jews. And, and the question is, so who is my neighbor? And that's where the, the parable of the Good Samaritan comes from. It's the, the self-sacrificial love is illustrated throughout Scripture. I want to I read this passage from, um, from uh, Baker's Bible Commentary. Paul's description of love in action includes uh, liberality, acts of mercy... And, hospi and hospitality, avoidance of revenge, 
Sympathy that weeps, rejoicing with others, sharing of weaknesses, shame or need, restoring, supporting and upbuilding others, giving them all honor, kindness, forgiveness and encouragement, restraining criticism even of the divisive, over scrupulous, weaker brother, Paul says. The list is almost endless of how this love should look. But more generally, love is revealed as a quality of acting, of thinking, and indeed of suffering that we learn in 1 Corinthians. In brief, love does no harm, the the sins of commission, and it emits no good. It, it, It omits no good. The sins of omission. It is God's law to love. Paul Paul takes this, this, this illustration principle of what love should look like and he dives headlong in his epistles. All throughout the epistles of Paul, he is, he is trying to tease out what that love should look like. So it's, it's not defined anywhere, but it seems to be illustrated everywhere. I wanna, I wanna quote R.E.O. White. He says, he says, Paul's motive appeals beyond duty. To love, we owe everything in salvation. God shows his love in that Christ died for us. Out of his great love, he made us alive in Christ. And in that love, we live. By it, we conquer. And from it, nothing shall separate us. Our love reflects the love first poured into our hearts. When Paul teaches on love, he teaches that love is not something that we do out of a sense of of duty. Love is something that we do in a a response to what Christ has done for us. Paul, uh, uh, Jesus says in this passage, love others as I have loved you. Jesus is the example of of what that love should look like. Jesus said, where I am going, no one else can come. So Jesus' love on the cross is the most ultimate display of that love. Because Jesus, Jesus didn't deserve to die the way that he died. We deserve to die that way, not Jesus. We could never live the life that Jesus did and we all deserve the death that Jesus got. We deserve that cross of Calvary. We deserve an eternity separated from God paying for the consequence of our own sin. That's what we deserve. But Christ, Christ in in, in his abundant mercy, he takes away the punishment of eternal hell that we all deserve. And he freely gives us eternal life with the Lord in its place. That is the kind of sacrificial love that Christ practiced. That is the kind of sacrificial love that Christ embodied and that he, that he displayed for us to see. And so that's the type of love that we've been called to practice. Philippians 2, I've already mentioned it. Philippians 2 talks about the, the humiliation of Christ and that we, we as Christians should practice the same type of humility that Christ practiced in the way that he loved. He put the needs of others, myself, ahead of his own. Jesus, 
and this is, man, I tell you, you want to get fired up about Christmas time? This is the point of Christmas. Whether any of you else, that doesn't even make sense. Whether any else, any, whatever, any of y'all, whether any of y'all have ever sinned or not, I have. So if everyone else on this planet over the course of time was perfect, Christ would have still had to come and live the life that I could not live and die the death that I deserve to die. So when Christ comes in the form of a, of a helpless babe, Christ is coming because of me. It is an extremely, it is an extremely personal thing to wrap our minds around the sacrificial love of Christ. Because whether or not anyone else deserves the, 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 the salvation and the forgiveness of God, I do. I need it. Christ came for me, whether or not he came for the rest of y'all. And that's, that's the whole point. It's an extremely personal indebtedness. It's an extremely personal sacrifice that Christ made individually for me. And I am the one that he loved enough to do that. And so when we all begin to attempt to wrap our minds around that depth and breadth and vast greatness of Christ's love, when we begin to wrap our minds around that, we should just be overwhelmed at how much God loves us. And I, we, Pastor Jim and I were talking about Revelation chapter 4 uh, this week. We were talking about the worship uh, in, in Revelation 4 and 5 of, of God the Father and then the and then the slain lamb. And I said, I said, preacher, do you really think we can behold God in all of his glory in heaven? And he said, well, yeah, we won't have sin in our life, so we'll, you know, we'll be with Christ. And I said, I don't think you understood the question. Do you really think we will be capable of beholding God in all of his glory? And again, Pastor Jim, he didn't get it. Well, yeah. Well, well, well yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Preacher, listen to me. Can we even experience the, the glory of God in its fullness? I said, I, I don't think I'll be able to handle it. And I told him, I said, I, I don't think I'll be able to handle it. Every passage of scripture where we see the glory of God on display, we have, we have Moses uh, up on the mountain, Moses is seeing the backside of God, and he has vision problems. We have the, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John don't have a clue what's going on because they're so overwhelmed at the glory of Christ. We have Paul in a Damascus Road experience who experienced vision problems for the rest of his life because he was blinded by a glimpse of Christ's glory. I said, preacher, I don't think I'll be able to handle it. I'll just be crushed. He said, aha, yes. The glory of God should crush us. We should fall on our faces. And if you've got a big nose, you should dig a little hole so that you can stick your nose further into the ground. We should just fall down in awe and wonder, being completely overwhelmed and crushed by the awesome weight of God's glory. That's how we must understand Christ's selfish, sacrificial love in each of our lives personally. So when we, when we begin to, and, and I love this, I love this word, meditate, not 
Om, not Buddhist meditation, but we should meditate on the Word of God. We should, we should take a verse, read it, pray about it, and just let it percolate. Just let it percolate in our mind. Just think about it, mull it over. And the more we mull it over, the more we should have aha moments. But when we, when we meditate on the, on the love of Christ for us, we should just be crushed at how unworthy we are to receive his love. And we should naturally respond accordingly. What is that response? That response is to love others as well. That's the response uh, of, of Christ uh, to Christ's love. We should love God back. It's a, it's a, it's a knee jerk reaction. When we see the love of God on display, we should automatically want to love Him more. And we should automatically want to love our neighbor and indeed our enemy even more. I want to take a look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments do not begin in verse 3, the, the no other gods commandment. They do not begin there. They start with a reminder of a covenant-keeping God rescuing the children of Israel out of bondage. Only after being reminded of who God is can they be expected to obey His commandments. Only after we are reminded of how great Jesus' love is for us can we be capable of loving others and being obedient to Christ's instruction? Some of y'all didn't say amen, so let me say it again. Only after we understand the context of who Jesus is and how great for us his love is, can we begin to be obedient in loving others? This uh, There's a New American Commentary, Dr. Gerald Borchert says, to forget the covenant is to set the commands. Uh, he's, he's referring to uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. To forget the covenant is to set the commands in a sea of meaninglessness. Rules have to be contextualized in order to have meaning. This, this verse, 34 and 35 Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. The world loves to highlight Jesus' command to love. They love, they, they, they wallow in the notion of love one another. The world wants everybody to love each other. But they don't understand the love of Christ. Few people understand the depth and the breadth of what this love means. It means self-sacrifice. It means putting another ahead of yourself. It means a love for even your enemy. We talk about love like it's a noun. And all throughout scripture, but even in the red text, even where Jesus is speaking... Jesus uses love as a verb. It is an action. It is something you do. You do love. You practice love. You exercise love. You don't, you don't talk about love like it's a noun. You love someone. It's a practice. It's an action. And that's the type of love that we should have for one another because of Christ's love for us. I want to I wanna sum things up in this way. In general, 
The glory of God refers to his own essential worth, his own greatness, his own power, majesty, everything in him which calls forth man's adoring reverence. This glory has been manifested throughout Jesus' ministry. But now it comes to a climax on the cross. For the chief characteristic of God revealed in Jesus is his love. It's a self-sacrificial love. So because of the love that we have experienced from Christ... We can't help but to love others. We can't help but to love him back. And as we love him in return, that's the way that we glorify the Lord in our life. It speaks about who Jesus is. It speaks about who we are. He is worth the glory in our lives because he loved us. Matthew Henry writes about verse 35. That if the followers of Christ do not love one another, they not only cast an unjust reproach upon their faith, but give just cause to suspect their own sincerity. He writes, O Jesus, are these thy Christians? These passionate, malicious, spiteful, ill-natured people? He goes on, when our brethren stand in need of help from us, when they differ in opinion from us or are provoking to us, so we have an occasion to forgive and practice this love. In such cases as this, it will be known whether we have this badge of love as Christ's disciples. That's my question to you. When others see the way that you love, do they see Jesus in you? When our brethren stand in need of help from us, when they differ in opinion from us or are provoking to us, so we have an occasion to love and to forgive. In such cases as this, it will be known whether we have this badge of love as Christ's disciples. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would stir in our hearts and as we uh, get near the Christmas time, as we approach uh, the Christmas season, I pray that you would remind us of why Christ became a human being. Remind us of, of why the events of Christmas took place. Remind us of our own guilt, our own sin debt, and our own desperate need for forgiveness and salvation and a Savior. And I pray that you would reveal that to us, that you would overwhelm us with that truth, that you would prick our hearts and you would just, you would, you would just crush us in the weight and the magnitude of your love and your glory. And, and, and I pray that our lives would simply be a response to those truths. I pray that others would see us in the way that we live and recognize that we are different because we have received the love of Christ. And God, I pray that indeed our actions and our lives would, would, would be visible 
for others to see Jesus in us. God, we ask that you speak to us now, move in our hearts, convict us of sin, encourage us in suffering. I pray that you would overwhelm us now with your love and you would draw us closer unto yourself. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.